0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello there, I'm Tom Switzer, and this is Between the Lines. Well, in 1968, Paul Ehrlich, do you remember him? He warned of catastrophic and imminent danger. In his wildly popular book, The Population Bomb, Ehrlich told a worried world that in just a few years, the planet would no longer be able to support humanity. There were just too many people and a dystopian future awaited us. Mass starvation and collapse that would ensure. Well, needless to say, that didn't happen. But 55 years later, demographers warn of a very different fate. World population has peaked and decline is forecast and rather than too many people the problem now for some countries could be that there won't be enough while fertility rates are falling in many countries around the world it's china that is experiencing the most dramatic decline and this has real implications for their future economic and social well-being so the question here is why why are china's youth reluctant to become parents Well, to find out, let's turn to Barclay Bram. He's a junior fellow on Chinese society matters at the Asia Society Policy Institute. Now, of course, keen Between the Lines listeners will remember that Kevin Rudd, past guest on this program, he's the Asia Society's president and CEO, or he was at least until recently. He's now, of course, off to Washington to become our ambassador. Welcome to Between the Lines, Barclay.
2: Hey, it's great to be now, here the Thank full
1: you. title of your paper is the last generation why china's youth are deciding against having children the last generation tell us about the origin and the story behind that phrase this actually came about during the
2: shanghai lockdown which as i'm sure your listeners will remember happened last year and you know was a really stark lockdown on a scale that really has not been seen anywhere in the world and so you had you know the entire population of shanghai locked into their homes for months on end some of them with very little food to eat and there was this viral video a young family who had broken some of the measures and they were currently you know and a bunch of the epidemic prevention workers in full white hazmat suits outside of their house banging on their door and the young couple open the door and they're getting these kind of harsh criticisms from the prevention workers and one of the prevention workers steps forward and on the front of his jacket it says police and he says listen if you do not comply with the epidemic prevention measures you will be punished and this punishment it will stick with your family for three generations and the the male in the couple he looks over he looks at the guy and he says thank you but this is our last generation and slams the door in their face and this became a viral sensation in china this idea of the last generation sui dai is how you say it in china and this idea of the last generation really chimed with a lot of people because many young chinese people are actually deciding against having children. So in a recent survey of more than 20,000 people in China, mostly females between the ages of 18 to 31, which was conducted by a local research organization, two-thirds of respondents said that they did not desire to have children. And China's fertility rate has massively plummeted. So at the moment, in 2021, China's fertility rate was 1.16, which is well below the 2.1 standard for a stable population as established by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, which puts China's fertility rate amongst the lowest and in the, the world. And to the extent
1: those trends continue, it's self-evident that there'll be lesser people to support a lot of older people. So back to this story that's very interesting. It's a form of protest, not having children. What are their lives like and and, and why are they profoundly dissatisfied, leaving aside the lockdowns?
2: Yeah, so this is a longer trend than just uh, COVID zero. So at the peak in the summer, China's youth unemployment rate reached 19%, nearly 20%, I think at at its peak, it was 19.9%. So that's a really high rate, obviously.
1: Very, Very high, yeah.
2: And young people have been suffering for a number of reasons, you know? So the older generation really benefited from this huge uplift of the reform period. So their parents experienced this astronomic economic growth, which touched every corner of China, even rural areas. And they have seen this sort of meteoric rise of the Chinese economy. They've seen high-speed rail, they've seen booming cities, they've seen the country, you know, in Mao Zedong's phrase, really stand up, and under Xi Jinping, you know, become a powerful nation that stands down its adversaries on the global stage. But for young people, they've only ever really experienced this kind of stronger, more economically developed China, and economic growth is starting to slow. It's no longer in the double digits. It's down, you know, to 5%, 4%, which sounds like a lot, right, coming from a Western perspective, but this is significantly less than it has been in the past. And China is an unequal society. So that means that if you're not in the privileged few, you're probably not experiencing these gains. And so what's happened in recent years is there have been a number of memes that have gone viral. The first one is this term called Neijuan or involution, right? The idea of kind of spiraling inwards which is, you know, the metaphor that I like to use is it's like wheels spinning in mud. And so lots of young Chinese people feel that no matter how hard they work, they're not going forward. They go through this incredibly intense exam system. They work incredibly hard. The lucky few manage to go to university. They then work incredibly hard at university. They then graduate. If you're really lucky, maybe you get a great job. But even if you get a great job, you're going to be working insane hours. And Life is becoming unaffordable.
1: China's zero COVID policy has obviously added to this sense of malaise for China's citizens and this mood of inertia and hopelessness that you've just described. It's not a recent phenomenon. I mean, it's been percolating for years, hasn't it? Completely.
2: And I think there are many aspects in which what is experienced in China is a more extreme version of what is being experienced elsewhere in the world. You know, we've Mm. seen in the West the idea of sort of quiet quitting. Among the young, we also see plummeting birth rates across you know many developed countries. And there is a sense in which for younger people, this question of you know, what does it all mean, right? If you can't afford a home, if you can't build a sort of traditional life, the kind of one that your parents had access to, and if you know to achieve those things, you know is is this kind of backbreaking labor that seems pointless then you know many people are choosing to opt out and so what is happening in china is in some senses analogous to what is happening elsewhere though what is happening in china is significantly more extreme i think
1: okay so china's population is expected to decline this year this is obviously a pressing problem for china's authorities if these trends continue i think your figure is that the size of the labor force will be reduced by 23% in 2050 compared to 2020. I mean, that's an extraordinary decline. How worried are the China's authorities?
2: They're clearly very worried. Optimistic experts think that maybe the rise of automation will somehow redress this issue, but the more pragmatic thinkers are pretty aware that this is not a sustainable situation. Losing that percentage of the labor force puts way too much burden on the people who remain. And there are some systemic issues here in China, right? The retirement rate is extremely low. It's in the 50s. And actually the average life expectancy in Shanghai is 82. So you're looking at people who might be able to retire and then experience 30 years of not working. And so that 30 years has to be supported by someone. And that burden is coming on these ever fewer young people and so what young people are forced to shoulder is increasing all the time which ironically contributes to the pressure that they feel this sense that no matter what they do they're never going to be able to support all of the burdens and then makes them decide actually you know what i'm not going to have a kid and so there is a kind of cyclical irony to what is happening
1: my guest is barclay bram he's affiliated with the economist magazine and the asia society and we're discussing his recent asia society paper it's called the last generation why china's youth are deciding against having children okay barclay let's look at what's driving the falling fertility rates in china obviously we have to mention the the one china or sorry the one child policy and that was pretty much put in place by the Deng Xiaoping regime in the early 80s. Uh, it prevailed until about 2016. Now, that was a measure that succeeded in reducing the population, since been abandoned. But what's been the legacy and the unintended consequences of that policy, the one child policy?
2: Yeah, well, as you opened the show, you know, with that great kind of uh, image of you know, this worry that prevailed in the sort of 60s and 70s of this coming demographic bomb that no one was going to be able to survive. No one was going to be able to eat. There were so many mouths to feed. What were you going to do? And China at the time was the most populous nation in the world. And so they Hmm. embarked on this policy to try and lower the birth rate at any cost. And this policy, the one child policy, became one of the largest invasions into the privacy of women ever conducted in human history, to the point where, you know, in in work units, women had to report their periods, there were forced sterilizations, there were forced abortions all the time. Women used to go on the run when they became pregnant. It was truly, you know, a barbaric and really difficult policy. And Mm. the sad thing is that actually, you know, many scholars now look at it and think, actually, the population probably would have naturally peaked at around this point anyway because naturally as people have more ki- have, have more money and become more affluent they tend to have less kids anyway and so economic growth might have actually done a lot of the work of the one child policy itself but you know to the extent that the one child policy was successful in reducing births, one of the key issues is that because people could only have one child and because there is a traditional and unfortunately sexist bias towards having Male offspring in China, you now have a situation where there are 118 men to every 100 women. So you have wow. a massively skewed sex ratio in China. There are just way too many men for every woman. <laughs> and so this is part of this long standing legacy and part of this issue, which is also the dating scene, the kind of marriage market, as it were, in China is definitely not a normal one you know it is massively skewed and this creates more pressures on young people when they seek a partner
1: to what extent are young Chinese marrying later and having fewer children
2: yeah so there are some very you know clear statistics about this so from 2013 to 2020 the number of couples who married in China dropped from 13.5 million to 8.1 million roughly, which is roughly a decrease of 40%. And likewise, the average age of first-time parents rose from 24 in 1990 to 27 and a half in 2020. And obviously that three-year rise is potentially one or two children that young people are not having.
1: And the costs associated with having children, I I guess that's a deterrent?
2: Oh, completely. I mean, you know... A really good statistic that I think really drives this home is that in Shanghai's uh, Jing'an and Minhang districts, low-income families, so those with annual incomes under 50,000 yuan, they spend more than 70% of their total income on the child, according to a 2019 Shanghai Academy of Social Sciences report. And even an affluent family, they spend from Birth until the age of 15, they're spending around US $120,000 per child. And this includes roughly US $73,000 on education alone, which is well over half of the overall total. So that gives you a sense of just the burden of having a child. But on top of that, you have the cost of living for the parents, right? And so from 1995 to 2021, per capita healthcare expenditures increased 33 times which far exceeds the nearly 14-fold increase in disposable income over the same period and house prices have also risen and with them the debt burden so from 2004 to 2021 the mortgage to income ratio increased from 16.2% to 57.4% wow. so the costs just in general have you know massively spiraled for the parents, for their elder generation that they're looking after, and then to raise children. And so many families, you know, many young couples, they just look at it and they say, well, how are we going to support this? Maybe we can have one child. Maybe we can't even have a child.
1: I mean, the consequences for China of this projected population decline is (laughs) realised. They're profound. So couldn't the Chinese authorities appeal to nationalism to encourage more people to have children to save the nation?
2: I mean, they could theoretically, but I think on a practical level, most people are going to be more concerned about like cost of living increases. And you can see, you know, in certain in certain local districts, they're giving tax breaks. They're trying to give credit to young families. Uh, to pay for some kindergarten you know they're trying to extend paternity leave they're trying to extend maternity leave so i think the policies that you 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 see are much more practical and targeted on this you know the individual family level like what can we give you to have a kid and i think Mm -hmm. those are likely to be more compelling than you know Encouraging a a a young couple to, out of some self-sacrificing love of country, have a child. I mean, it might be compelling to some people, but the likelihood is, you know, most people are more practical than that, and they're going to say, "Okay, that sounds great, but like, pay me or make things cheaper, and I will consider it." And that is actually, you know, largely what the government is trying to do, right? But it is in many in many senses, it is too little, too late, you know. And the policy levers that they have. They're not that delicate. They're not that well targeted. And I think there is a prevailing issue, which is less, you know, maybe nationalistic, but it's more traditional, right? And so Mm. you have this massive sex imbalance. You have way too many men in China. One obvious solution would be if you legalize gay marriage and give same-sex couples the same rights as heterosexual couples to adopt children. You could create many more, millions more families in China within a generation. But that is certainly not the policy that the government is looking at. In fact, Mm. they've been pushing traditional, you know, quite chauvinistic and patriarchal understandings of what a family is. And they've had these campaigns against what are called like niang pao, like sissy boy, you know, not strong. Mm. Not, mm. not strong men, et cetera. So non-traditional masculinities are being massively kind of criticized by the government. And so you see, like, you know, it is a very retrograde understanding of what a family is, and it's a very narrow definition. And so this creates a problem where, you know, instead of a creative solution to this issue, they're trying to kind of brute force it and find the solution in the past. It's harking back to some traditional idea of a family where a woman is this devoted mother who stays at home and the the young man goes off and earns Mm. lots of money. But this isn't really the reality, and you definitely can't survive in China today on a single income as a young family.
1: Well, if the uh, projected population decline is realized then the consequences for china will be profound it doesn't get enough attention but barclay you've enlightened our our listeners today thank you so much for being on between the lines
2: yeah thank you so much for having me
1: that was barclay bram he's affiliated with the economist magazine and the new york-based asia society and we'll post a link to his paper online it's called the last generation why china's youth are deciding against having children We'll put that on the Between the Lines homepage. Up next on Between the Lines, the Taliban's march to the Middle Ages. Well, my next guest represents a refugee success story. His name is Mahir, and he was born in Afghanistan in 1982. That's three years after the Soviet invasion. His father was a senior Afghan military figure heading the prison system. He was jailed six months before Mahir was born. So, Mahir grew up for his first eight years without his dad, and he lived as a refugee in neighbouring Pakistan for 19 years. After the US liberated Afghanistan from the despotic Taliban rule, this of course was late 2001 after the 9-11 terror attacks, Mahir returned home. In his 20s, he joined the United Nations program and then moved to work for the World Bank. Thanks to the crucial support of the US government, Mahir then set up a network of community banks to help develop local businesses. Now, this enterprise infuriated the Taliban, so Mahir was near the top of their hit list. Indeed, the Islamic fundamentalists set out to kill him. As a result, Mahir once again fled the country he loved, Afghanistan, and he ultimately found refuge in Australia in 2012. Two years later, in 2014, Mahir's wife and three children also found refuge in Sydney. These days, Mahir is, among other things, a committee member of the Human Rights Watch, a founder of Hardia Foundation, that's an Australian charity that helps health and education services for Afghanis, and he's Chief Operating Officer of Islamic Bank Australia. He's also been Founding Chief Executive of the Regional Opportunities Australia and Thrive Refugee Enterprise, which helps refugees get a small loan to start up business in Australia. His full name is Mahir Momand, and it's a great pleasure to welcome him back to RN. Hi there, Mahi. Uh, thanks for having me back. Now, take us back to the decade following the US liberation of Afghanistan. So this was 2001 and thereafter. Tell us more about why the Taliban targeted you and your business.
3: I was running a network of community banks that provided finance to people to start small businesses and instead of joining the Taliban as insurgents, uh, we were also assisting farmers to grow things like saffron, lizard crops, instead of growing opium which funded the Taliban war machine and we were also assisting women to start small businesses inside their houses and therefore the Taliban saw all those things as attacking their idols and their position because of which they targeted me and my organisation.
1: And other Afghans like you, I mean what was your attitude towards the Americans during this period? Because they were essentially running the show from 2001 until 2021.
3: Uh, Educated Afghans of my generation saw the United States as an ally and friend of Afghanistan that helped us build roads, hospitals, schools, a modern government system, and introduced us to Democracy, because of which we loved the United States and what it was doing in Afghanistan.
1: And President George W. Bush?
3: I I, I wholeheartedly love uh, President George uh, W. Bush in the United States. It was because of the United States and President Bush's support for Afghanistan, because of which, for the first time in Afghanistan history, we had millions of girls and boys going to school. We had roads, we had schools, uh, we had hospitals, uh, we had Afghanistan's embassies and representations across the world uh, and we had gotten our uh, our place in the international stage with organizations like the United Nations and the World Trade Organization and all that
1: yeah and women's rights and human rights generally during this period
3: indeed upholding human rights was immensely strengthened during uh, the. US president in Afghanistan between 2001 and 2021
1: we're approaching the 20th anniversary of the US-led invasion of Iraq and I think it's a widespread view that George W. Bush, along with Tony Blair and to some extent John Howard, have been, you know, they're attacked for their role in the Iraq invasion, which is widely regarded as a bit of a debacle. But you're saying that their role in Afghanistan was a noble mission
3: it it definitely was that intervention was needed uh, getting rid of the taliban in 2001 was something that was really really needed and the fact that uh, when the us intervened in afghanistan we had so much difference to the time that the taliban were in control those were all great things that we afghans are proud of and 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 we uh, hope that that could have uh, been continued and strengthened
1: and yes even though the us was still enforcing a military presence I'm talking about 2012 here, you still fled Afghanistan, why?
3: Um, I I fled because my life was in danger and Taliban were unfortunately growing stronger and stronger with the help of Afghanistan neighbours like Pakistan, Iran and the regional powers like China and Russia.
1: Why Australia? Why did you find refuge here uh, and not another Western nation such as the US?
3: uh well it was a coincidence that i found myself in australia i've never been uh, here before and it so happened that i had an australian visa at the time uh, when i was attacked which brought me here to australia and i've fallen in love with australia since then
1: and your dad he was the former senior afghan military official i mentioned him in my introduction the soviets jailed him Now, he and your mum, they're now also living here. How how are they coping?
3: Uh, Yes, uh, they're coping well. They arrived about 18 uh, months uh, after the fall of uh, Afghanistan to the hands of the Taliban. Uh, They're coping well. Dad and mum are going to TAFE to learn English. They're making great progress. uh, And they love the safety and security that Australia offers. However, they remain gravely concerned for the security and safety of two of my sisters who are yet to make it to Australia. Right,
1: and and, uh, efforts are underway to help bring them and presumably... We we are working hard on it. Yeah. His life would have changed dramatically, though, because he was a senior military official in the Afghan army before the Soviet invasion. And, uh, And then, of course, now the Taliban are back. He's had to flee. Um, I mean, his life would have changed dramatically from being a senior figure in the military to being a refugee in Western Sydney.
3: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, it is uncomparable in so many ways. Uncomparable because the, the life that he was living in Afghanistan compared to the life that he's living in a small unit in Western Sydney uh, is, is a very different thing. But as I said, the security and safety that Australia offers, that he does not have to have bodyguards on him and hop on a train and go, Uh, to TAFE and places like that, that that is such a a big difference.
1: Well, history is littered with many immigrants and refugees to this country uh, becoming great entrepreneurs. You think of the Frank Lowys, the Harry Triggerboffs, the Simon Mordents, the Tony Bergs, uh, the Joseph Sigridskys, the Iraqi surgeon uh, Munjed al-Maduris and so on. Why do you think this is the case that these immigrants can become such successful entrepreneurs?
3: Uh, There's a reason why Australia is called the lucky country. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. The absolute majority of refugees and migrants who have arrived, particularly refugees in Australia uh, from uh, the early times of 1940s uh, to date, have contributed immensely to the Australian uh, economy, to diversity of this country in the form of food, culture and talent. And, And those examples that you gave are some of the many, many great examples. Now, these people who have come to Australia as refugees have not only become full in wholeheartedly Australian, but Mm -hmm. their children and their grandchildren Mm -hmm. are um, everyday Australians and are making a great contribution.
1: It's a wonderful story. My guest is Mahir Mamand, he's an Afghan refugee and a self-made successful businessman in Australia who does a lot to promote refugee rights, especially from war-torn Afghanistan. We're talking about the deteriorating security situation in that country since the United States military withdrawal that took place in, I think it was August of 2021, Mahir. Now, the Americans were pretty much in Afghanistan for that 20-year period after the September 11 uh, terror attacks. The Biden administration kept the Trump administration peace deal with the Taliban to withdraw US forces. Now, the troop withdrawal was widely regarded as a humiliation. Take us back to your thoughts in... July, August, September of 2021?
3: Um, While the US did a lot to help Afghanistan, for which Afghanistan will always remain thankful, it is uh, a fact that uh, the manner in which the US withdrew from Afghanistan can only be described, uh, in my personal view, as an irresponsible, unwired and politically incorrect decision. I believe that regional powers saw the withdrawal of the United States in that time, in that manner, as a sign of weakness. Mm. Um, And and therefore, uh, you see uh, Russia uh, attacking Ukraine because it saw that the US may be weak and it's not present in the region anymore. And I'm afraid that China may do the same in Taiwan. Yeah, we'll get to that in
1: a moment. But surely the US could not stay forever in Afghanistan. I mean, if you look at all the available... U.S. polling evidence from that period, you know, not surprisingly showed the American people, uh, you know, they were tired of nation building in Afghanistan, a lot of blood and treasure. Can you understand why the Americans on both sides of the fence, both Republicans and Democrats, wanted to leave the U.S. after all is not an empire, Mahir?
3: Yeah, correct. Uh, They couldn't stay in Afghanistan forever. Uh, However, uh, the solution was also not to replace Taliban with Taliban. Uh, What I mean by that is that the US came to Afghanistan in 2001, liberated Afghanistan from the Taliban, then spent trillions of dollars, lost thousands of American precious lives and hundreds of thousands of Afghan lives, only to replace the same Taliban 20 years later Mm. from whom they liberated Afghanistan.
1: But doesn't that 20 year period show the difficulties in trying to, if you like, export democracy to what many people might say is still a medieval society?
3: Uh, yes, uh, but, but, but it's also a fact that when the U.S. came to Afghanistan, it introduced us to values like democracy, like human rights, mm-hmm. women's rights, and rule of law. And my generation of educated Afghans took those values wholeheartedly and made them our own, and we looked up to the United States as this great power that brought us all those beautiful uh, Western values and we made them our own. But when the US signed the Doha deal with the Taliban and Mm. subsequently withdrew from Afghanistan, it felt like those values were not important anymore, as if upholding human rights and women's rights and democracy did not matter anymore. And because of that, we are all very disheartened Um, and and it's kind of like a big question mark whether those values were important in the first place. So
1: the conditions in Afghanistan today have self-evidently deteriorated dramatically. A bit more about life for women and those Afghans who don't like the Taliban?
3: Uh, Human rights and women's rights violations are at its peak under the current uh, Taliban control. Girls are not allowed to go to school or universities and women are not allowed to work. Uh, women indeed are being removed from the public life systematically. I think as Australians we need to play our role not to leave the yeah. Afghan people and women alone, especially when it comes to women education. One way Australia could assist is for Australian universities to give scholarships for Afghan girls um, in Afghanistan to study through online means. So, we can train the next generation of Afghan women leaders.
1: Um, is there any real effort in Canberra, from what you can tell, to do that, to help bring out? Afghani women on scholarships at university?
3: Um, I I am not aware of any efforts as such. However, what I am uh, promoting uh, is that uh, because we have about 40 million people living in Afghanistan, we cannot bring all the 40 million people to Australia. Therefore, we need to educate women who are left behind in Afghanistan with values that are international, that are acceptable to the rest of the, the, the world, uh, so that when the Taliban are not in power anymore, or change so much to accept women back to public life, so that we have the next generation of women leaders.
1: You must take solace in knowing that no, am I right in saying no government in the world has recognised the Taliban? I know the Australian government hasn't, but has there been any government to recognise the Taliban?
3: Thankfully, none. None. Well, yes. that's
1: encouraging. Yes. And what about refugee visas for uh, Afghans to Australia? What's the state of play there?
3: Um, so, Australian government has uh, made significant progress in allocating refugee visas to uh, Afghans. Uh, the number of people who have arrived is still a small number. Uh, we have been always promoting the idea that Australia should, because of its size, accept 30,000 um, 30, uh, refugee refugees yeah, right, in, okay. in, in, in Australia because of the size of the Afghan community as well. Um, however, uh, there is some progress made there, not full.
1: Now, I know in a lot of your work, and you and your colleagues and friends talk about aiding Afghanistan, not the Taliban, how is that possible?
3: It it is possible because, unfortunately, 75% of the Afghan uh, population, which is a total community of 40 million people, are on the verge of hunger. Uh, Now, it is important to send aid to those people, but not to the Taliban. Now, assisting the Taliban with their government and recognition is one thing, and sending aid to the normal people there is another thing, and it's the latter that I believe should continue.
1: Finally, back to the security situation, do you take any solace in knowing that the Taliban is primarily fighting the Islamic State Sunni jihadists? And let's be frank, they, they are, by virtually all accounts, a much more brutal terrorist outfit.
3: Uh, well, look, in my personal view, terrorists are terrorists. Yeah. Uh, there is no better or worse. Uh, when you Uh, have two groups of terrorists. Uh, I'm afraid that the Islamic State could be the next trying to Couple um, right. and, and take control of the Afghanistan uh, government. Uh, it's therefore of paramount urgency that the international community must not leave Afghanistan uh, alone again and ignore it, because otherwise uh, we are afraid that there may be another nine eleven if Afghanistan is ignored right. and left to the hands of these international terrorists. Well, you mentioned
1: are. China earlier in this segment. Do you think that Beijing will exploit the vacuum left by the Americans?
3: It certainly is already exploiting that vacuum. Uh, since the Taliban take over the largest investment in mineral resources and in national resources in Afghanistan are of those of the Chinese government. Of the foreigners who are existent in Afghanistan today, the largest number of people from China, uh, we are really, really concerned that the China would be next to invade Afghanistan after uh, the Brits, the USSR, or the Soviet Union, and the United States had their own turns.
1: Finally, Mahir, on the security question, um, on this program over the last 18 or so months since the US withdrawal from Afghanistan, several prominent security experts, such as Professor John Mearsheimer from the University of Chicago, Bridge Colby, who was a senior defense official in the Trump administration, they argue that the US withdrawal from Afghanistan was more than justified because it will help Washington reorder priorities away from these endless wars, as Donald Trump called them, and focus more on the big game, that is East Asia, to hedge against a much greater threat, and that's China.
3: How would you respond to them? Uh, well, my response to that is that Withdrawing from, the Afga- uh, from, from Afghanistan is actually, in a way, assisting China to become braver and in, in do things that we should not uh, witness. So I'm concerned that they may be next to invade Taiwan.
1: Mahir, great to have you on Between the Lines.
3: Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.
1: That's Mahir Momand, he's founder of Hardia Foundation, an Australian charity that helps health and education services for Afghanis. He's also the Chief Operating Officer of the Islamic Bank of Australia and a committee member of Human Rights Watch Australia. Up next on Between the Lines, why must a disagreement amount to a culture war? Well, Anthony Albanese said something interesting the other day. People who question the voice to Parliament, he warned, are, quote, trying to start a culture war. What did the Prime Minister mean? What do you think? A war? Well, my next guest asks, why must we frame this latest issue of public policy in terms of war? Is every disagreement a culture war? Parnell McGuinness is a columnist with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age in Melbourne. Parnell, welcome back to Between the Lines.
4: Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me.
1: Our pleasure. Now, first, what is a culture war?
4: To give you a little bit of history, it comes from the German word Kulturkampf, which was used to describe a clash in 19th century Germany between the head of government and the head of church. So that was a big skirmish back then, which had considerable moral weight. And that has come to mean these days a conflict between social groups, which stems from a struggle to assert their values and beliefs.
1: And in the current context, I think you've made this point in your column that essentially it means a, a culture war, that is, it pretty much describes every source of disagreement that matters, correct?
4: That's right. Well, you know, we don't have a culture war over something that doesn't matter. So we, we don't war over, you know, whether you like strawberry ice cream or chocolate ice cream. We might have a friendly disagreement, <laughs> but we can agree to disagree. But, um, but culture wars come from the things which, which go to our core values and morality, the things that really matter to us and that we think morally right and that we're willing to fight against other people for. Um, So that's what turns into a culture war when you get a clash of these senses of what is morally right.
1: You argue in your column that the left accuses the right of waging culture wars whenever there is any resistance to progressive policies. If that is indeed right, how does the right respond?
4: Yeah, so <laughs> the, the left often uses culture war as a pejorative now. So it's sort of the way that people use the term fascist online, which is just a synonym for anybody that they don't like. But of course, what they really mean when they say culture warrior is probably a reactionary. And the right, the way that they're responding to that is to is they're starting to say more and more, look, hang on, we're not trying to start a war. In fact, We're just holding the line, you know, we're respecting institutions and it's you guys who are coming along from the left and attacking us. So as Sarah Huckabee-Smith said um, the other day in the U.S., She said most Americans simply want to live their lives in freedom and peace, but we're under attack in a left-wing culture war we didn't start and never wanted to fight.
1: Yeah, she mentioned Sarah Huckabee Sanders. She was the press secretary to Donald Trump and she was famously or infamously refused service at a restaurant and she was ushered out just because she worked for the President of the United States. But let me push back here a little bit, Parnell. Are American conservatives, especially in their present-day form, these are the Trumpists, Are they the proper role model here for conservatives? Because they don't want things to stay the same. Uh, Many uh, people tuning in might say that they're not, in fact, conservatives at all. And if you think about it, most of them showed on January 6, 2022, that they want to undermine democracy via insurrection. Yet you say conservatives are broadly right to complain that the left started this conflict. How does that work?
4: So, I would agree with those people who say that Trumpists aren't conservatives. So they are radicals, and there has been a great big argument in conservative circles about how Trump and Trump acolytes should be understood, because a lot of conservatives, and you know, and I say this with a small c um, because it means you know people who are genuinely believe in conserving what is best do see Trump as a radical opportunist who is bashing down a lot of the institutions which they, by definition, think are worth preserving and conserving. So I do agree that that Trump is a radical and Sarah Huckabee Sanders is saying that she's tapping into the conservative feeling, but she's really, I, I would agree, not a conservative herself. She's just articulating something to identify with that particular part of society.
1: What about those folks opposed to the voice to parliament? Are they, as the Prime Minister warns, trying to start a culture war?
4: No, I don't think so, but then neither are the people who are proposing a voice. And this is where things get really nuanced and where it's so silly, I find, to use the term like culture war or to start accusing people of culture war. Because look, the people proposing a voice want to make a change for the better. And and a lot of them do believe that any resistance to that is a challenge to progress. But of course, on the conservative side, what they see themselves as doing is invoking people to tread carefully and pointing out that the institutions that we have have considerable value. So they're they're the institutions on which the rule of law is based and which enshrine sort of equality for all people rather than group rights. So they are saying not no to a voice necessarily, some people are of course, but how can we ensure that a voice can be designed so that we preserve what is best about the institutions that we have while at the same time creating something which will be beneficial to Australia as a whole and especially to Indigenous and Torres Strait Islander people.
1: Well, on that note, you quote with approval the prominent Sky News broadcaster and News Corp columnist, Peter Credlin, and she says that should this voice pass, and these are Credlin's words, Australia Day will change, there will be more demands to rewrite history, there will be a multitude of treaties at all levels of government between our country and small groups of citizens. Now, that's Peter Credlin writing in the Australian newspaper Parnell, many listeners tuning into the ABC would say that's a big stretch, that the voice in fact is really just modest change to acknowledge our First Nations people in the Constitution, something that most people would say is long overdue. Your response?
4: Well, and yet most people who would think that probably haven't been listening to the yes case clearly. So I was neither being approving or disapproving of Credlin in voting her. What I found interesting about that quote was the response in Crikey, which was, well, they Crikey then editorialised and said, well, that sounds like it's all positives. And, in fact, that is precisely Ooh. what a lot of the yes case are saying. These are the changes that are going to come and this is just the beginning. So we should be really aware of that for some people, this is the start of big revolutionary change and for other people, what they're trying to achieve with this with this voice is an improvement to the current system and that's actually where the skirmish comes down to.
1: Your critics would respond by saying that Australia, like the Western world generally, Parnell, it's changing, it's becoming more progressive. We had the federal election last year where clearly the centre of political gravity shifted a bit to the left, especially in those erstwhile liberal seats former safe seats in the metropolitan areas of perth and brisbane and melbourne and sydney about half of australians today were either born overseas or had at least one parent who was and some of these of course are from britain but the majority are not so is changing the five dollar bill for example getting getting the monarchy off the the currency for instance isn't that just simply reflecting the changing society and isn't this organic change fueled not by the left or the progressives, but by the broader Australian public?
4: Well, look, society by definition always progresses. And, and I think, though, that it's wrong to say that that means it is necessarily the left prevailing. There are two types of change. One of them is evolutionary, because society does need to change. It cannot be said in aspect. And conservatives, genuine conservatives, recognise that. And they recognise that The important thing is to change carefully and understand that you should not dismantle institutions you don't understand or attack things, you know, and get rid of them without knowing what you're doing. On the other hand, there is sort of revolutionary change, which is when the left or when somebody, a minority group says, this is how society needs to change dramatically dramatically. To take it forward. Now, I don't think that uh, we have become a more revolutionary society. I think that um, Australia remains quite small, say, conservative in that we believe in cautious change and we understand how many good institutions we have and how positive a lot of things that happen in Australia are. Mm-hmm. I'm not fussed about things like changing the $5 bill. For some people, it's emblematic of, a, of some kind of revolution that is underway or a an attempt to make change against the will of the people, I see that much more in an evolutionary sense. I don't see it as something that is going to genuinely change society. But I do think it's really important that we keep a view of what is happening and what isn't.
1: You keep using these terms left and right, and you're obviously not alone. This is the terms of the ideological labels uh, in this so-called culture war. But let me again push back and ask you, do these ideological labels, do they still carry the same kind of resonance that they once did? I mean, surely these days, these terms left and right, they foster simplistic divisions, they create artificial alliances. I'll give you an example. You've got all these Australian corporations, big business. Over time, they've usually been aligned with the the pro-markets centre-right of the Liberal Party. These days, the big corporations... They're in cahoots with the so-called woke left on a variety of cultural issues, most notably the voice. So how would you respond to that?
4: Look, I also don't like using the terms left and right. You know, I use those terms simply as a shorthand for that. What I'm actually saying at the moment is a lot of the firms which originally said that they were going to come out. Um, very strongly in favour of the voice, understanding now that the debate is a lot more complex and taking a little bit of a step back. But I would say in a more general sense on the corporates, what we see a lot, this is very much, you know, look at, looking at it through the classical liberal framework, is we see a culture in a small market in Australia where... Um, taking on these stances gives you a competitive advantage which smaller businesses can't have. And I guess big corporates have started to understand that it is in their nature to look for competitive advantage wherever it is to be had. And if aligning yourself with values and donating in a big way and, you know, becoming a voice on something Allows you to put a put a cordon around the market and delineate yourself from smaller competitors, then they will do it because it's a really cheap way for them of out competing and pushing out the smaller the smaller players out of the market. So, to me, that is almost the most liberal or neoliberal approach that could be taken mm-hmm. if you wanted to use neoliberal as a as a pejorative that that a corporate could take is to use a, a topic as a form of competition.
1: Well, Parnell, it's great to have you back on Between the Lines.
4: Pleasure. Well, really nice to be here.
1: Parnell McGuinness, she's a columnist with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age in Melbourne. Well, it's a huge question that we still don't have a definitive answer to. How did the pandemic start? What was the origin of the coronavirus? Was it, according to the now-retired Anthony Fauci, who served as America's top infectious disease expert, along with many in the scientific community, this was the consensus that the virus, like many others, that passed from animals to humans? Or, in a challenge to that conventional wisdom, some suggest it could have unintentionally escaped from a research laboratory. Now, just in the past week, the US Energy Department, which oversees a national network of laboratories, it concluded that the COVID-19 virus leaked from a lab in Wuhan. Now, this doesn't mean or prove China's guilt. After all, the new judgment, though the intelligence is new and still secretive, it's made with low confidence. However, it's more evidence that the group think about the origins of the pandemic, well, they may have been misplaced. It's also a reminder why the likes of investigative journalist Shari Markson, she may have been onto something in 2021 when she published her book, What Really Happened in Wuhan. It's published by HarperCollins. Here's Markson on Between the Lines two years ago.
0: This is what I, I explore in my book. The problem is there was no adequate investigation. The WHO, the World Health Organization's inquiry, was such a farce for so many reasons. Um, Most of all, the conflicted scientists that were taking part in it, some of whom had been working with the Wuhan Institute of Virology and funding it for 15 years. But that's why I decided to write the book, because no one had properly investigated or examined this. So in the the course of the book, uh, I explore the science you know, the the clues in the virus itself, what the virus itself can tell us about its origin. And then I also investigate what was happening in Wuhan at the time and prior to the outbreak. And there's actually an enormous amount of evidence, which even surprised me as I was investigating it. Um, And I spoke to whistleblowers in Wuhan, Chinese defectors who are now, Chinese dissidents who are now uh, in the West, intelligence officials, politicians, politicians, around the world and scientists, and they're all on the record in the course of the book. And so what I found is that there's actually a lot of evidence for a lab leak. The only reason people think it emerged naturally is because this is how viruses have started in the past.
1: Well, the Chinese Communist Party uh, has vigorously denied the lab scenario, and they often insist that the culprits are beyond its borders. Now, in response to your various stories This is very interesting, Shari. The CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, they targeted you via their various media outlets. Tell us more.
0: It's such a complicated topic. There's so much to this that you couldn't possibly write it in, in a single or a few newspaper articles. So I decided to write the book, and it was at that time that the Chinese Communist Party propaganda outlets the global times the china daily and and so many others there started targeting me and and blaming me for this lab leak conspiracy theory and i think that's a reflection of two things one is that they're just so sensitive about any suggestion this came from a laboratory and they were really successful throughout the whole of 2020 in painting this possibility as a conspiracy theory and what's so shocking is that so much of the world went with that. We, You know, we went with the narrative of the world's largest authoritarian regime instead of properly examining and interrogating the possibility this was an accident from a lab.
1: Why does this lab story really matter?
0: One, we need justice. We've seen the deaths of five million people around the world. We need to know why they died. We need justice for them and for all of their loved ones left behind. And the second crucial reason is because we need to prevent another pandemic. And if it is the case, and we don't know conclusively, but if it is the case that the pandemic started because America was funding risky coronavirus research in a laboratory in China where it had no oversight, then you know, we, we need to look at that.
1: That was Sherry Markson, author of What Really Happened in Wuhan on Between the Lines in 2021. Well, that's it for Between the Lines. I'm Tom Switzer. Bye for now.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC
4: podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.